The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Good morning. It's Monday, the 4th of December here in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, Iranian-backed Houthi rebels attack commercial ships in the Red Sea as Israel ramps up its offensive in Gaza. Bill Gates warns that the world probably won't meet its climate goals as Bloomberg finds banks' green reporting lacks consistency. Plus £8,300 worse off. Britain's economic stagnation leaves households counting the cost, according to one new report. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. A US Navy ship has responded to a flurry of drone and missile attacks against commercial ships operating in the Red Sea. The destroyer USS Kearney blamed Yemen's Houthi rebels for what it said were four attacks against three separate vessels. Those included an attack on the UK-owned cargo ship, the Unity Explorer, which caused minor damage. Retired US Marine Colonel Steve Gagnard says that the Pentagon fears escalation. The U.S. is being very careful not to turn the Red Sea into a shooting gallery. Uh, The Houthis continue to target what they say are only Israeli ships, but the U.S. needs to be assured and the world needs to be assured that there's freedom of navigation and that ships could transit the heavily trafficked Red Sea. Steve Gagnard reflecting on the growing fears for the safety of vessels in the busy shipping lane. Last month, the rebels in Yemen issued a threat against ships with ties to Israel in the area, calling them, quote, legitimate targets. The regional escalation comes as Israel's military expands its operations against Hamas days after a week-long truce came to an abrupt end. The Israeli military is now warning many of the territory's 2.2 million residents to evacuate parts of southern Gaza as it ramps up airstrikes on the territory. Hiba TB from the aid organisation Care International. The winter is already in Gaza. People left without proper clothing. Most of them, they already sleep outdoor in the overcrowded shelters. And now with this new evacuation, many of them say, we know we need to evacuate, but we don't know where to go with the new order. That warning from one aid agency comes as John Kirby, spokesman for the US National Security Council, said Israel had taken steps to minimise civilian casualties. We've urged them to, as they go south, we've said, we've said publicly, we don't want to see them move into the south unless or until they have accounted for that additional now civilian population because they move folks out of the north into the south, hundreds of thousands of them. We want to make sure that they're properly accounted for. And again, them publishing this map online and dropping leaflets and informing people of, uh, of where not to go, I mean, that is a step in the right direction. That's John Kirby speaking. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says more than 15,500 people have been killed since the conflict began eight weeks ago. Israel says around 400 of its soldiers and 59 police personnel have been killed since the deadly 7th of October attack. 
And now to stories around climate change. Bill Gates sees a hotter world failing to stop temperatures from rising even higher. Once the world's richest man, Gates has devoted large sums of money to fighting climate change. At this year's COP summit, he told Bloomberg, humanity will miss global warming targets that were set at the 2015 Paris Agreement. No, we won't hit hit, uh, the aspirational targets. Well, you can do the math on... 1.5 and you know even 2.0 isn't that likely. Gates is still optimistic that the world can avoid becoming three degrees Celsius warmer than the pre-industrial era but scientists point to this year's extreme weather as an omen of the damage that climate change is causing. Bitcoin has hit a 19-month high of more than $41,000. The cryptocurrency's stellar performance comes after a turbulent period for the token in the wake of FTX's collapse. Lucy Gasmararian is the managing partner and founder at Token Bay Capital. She explains why she sees Bitcoin surging. You know, there's a combination of factors going on here. I'd say, you know, expectations that interest rates are are potentially going to, you know, start coming down next year. And then the big thing in the sort of crypto circles is that the Bitcoin halving that's coming up, where the rewards for miners that are mining Bitcoin transactions gets cut in half. So you get a supply shock. Lucy Gasmararian speaking there. Bitcoin has jumped by more than 150% this year to outstrip other investments like stocks and gold. UK households are now roughly £8,000 poorer than those in France and Germany, according to a major new report. Two think tanks behind it say that Britain is in 15 years of stagnation and has called the government's economic plan, quote, not serious. Bloomberg's James Wilcock has the story. The Resolution Foundation and the Centre for Economic Performance say the UK might have had its own lost decade of growth. The two top think tanks say Britons earn less and are now less productive than rival countries. But despite their major new report calling for more investment and funding for public services, taxes are at a post-war high. Labour leader Keir Starmer praised Margaret Thatcher over the weekend and says his party won't turn on spending taps if elected. In London, James Wilcock, Bloomberg Radio. And the Chinese developer Evergrande has won a reprieve in a restructuring agreement with creditors. Bloomberg's Brian Curtis has more from Hong Kong. This buys some time for Evergrande and its creditors to do a deal. A Hong Kong court adjourned a winding up proceeding until January 29th. The unexpected delay came as the original petitioner did not push for an immediate liquidation. Bloomberg has reported that offshore creditors want a controlling interest in Evergrande and its two Hong Kong units. The builder has offered them a minority stake. Expect a lot of back and forth now over the next eight weeks. In Hong Kong, Brian Curtis, Bloomberg Radio. Now, in a moment, we'll be discussing fears of greenwashing and sustainable investment goals for banks. But another story that caught my eye this morning from COP28. Obviously, we've been talking about a lot of the big conversations happening there, the global agreements to try and tackle renewables. But an idea from a Russian billionaire to look at how the tundra ecosystem in Siberia could be maintained to stop the release of methane emissions uh, from the thawing permafrost there as well. His idea is to recreate a time when woolly mammoths roamed the tundra. Um, This is something that we're trying to see. He's demonstrating with the sort of digital 
illustration of what it would look like if Ice Age animals were wandering uh, the tundra in uh, Siberia. But this woolly is mammoths. An ac- is woolly that, mammoths, yes. Right. That's is, the that, idea. is that serious or is this the sort of... Um, because, look, uh, coming with COP28, all sorts of ideas and a bit of a kind of trade show feel, basically, on the side of COP28. A lot of businesses come to kind of um, talk about all of the, the climate change issues. I mean, I suppose there's a there's been a lot of criticism that it's being held in a petro state, effectively. Um, and so one wonders, is that is that a serious proposition? Yeah, I mean, look, you're not alone in thinking that. Robert Savins, who's a Harvard University professor of environmental economics, says you could think of this as more of a circus where the main event is sometimes eclipsed by the prominence of... Uh, of trade shows as well. Um, it is something, it's, I think it's not quite mammoths that we're looking at as well, but it is the idea of trying to restore what the ecosystem was, the right. time of the mammoths, okay. uh, to be able to try and contain and, and, and stop essentially the permafrost melting at the rate that it is because of the risk of releasing more methane, which is potentially more damaging to the climate than other greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, absolutely. But the, the major challenge really of trying to deal with climate change and, and what that means, continued coverage then uh, on the programme this morning of the COP28 summit, which obviously is on for a whole fortnight. Let's go next, though, to the Middle East, where Israel's military is expanding operations across Gaza, while a US Navy ship has responded to drone and missile attacks against commercial ships in the Red Sea. We've got Bloomberg senior reporter Anthony Cuisine with us in Tel Aviv this morning. Anthony, let's start with what's been happening in Gaza, the Israeli military offensive targeting the south of Gaza. What more can you tell us? Okay, well, um, obviously, it's a pretty intense campaign. Um, we just had news that the uh, IDF uh, says it hit about 200 targets overnight. Um, so a lot of airstrikes and other ordnance, um, all in a very crowded area um, where most of uh, Gaza's 2.2 million people are now holed up. Um, it's a very difficult situation because um, Israel has come under intense criticism for the, uh, the number of... Uh, civilian casualties in its campaign in northern Gaza in recent weeks before the truce. And now it's proceeding into southern Gaza. And while it has set up a safe zone and has been uh, putting a map online and dropping leaflets to tell people where to go, um, aid agencies and Gazans themselves are saying they don't know what's going on and where to go, and they feel they've got nowhere left to go. Mm. So how, um, what is the response then when the likes of the US Vice President Kamala Harris are warning Israel about civilian casualties in Gaza? How significant? Is, is it a change in tone from the Biden administration? Absolutely. The, uh, the Biden administration um, officials have become more strident um, over the last few weeks in cautioning Israel to, be, um, to exercise more caution and to try and limit the number of civilian casualties. Um, they're coming under a lot of pressure at home and also from the international community about the, uh, the death toll, which uh, local authorities in Gaza have put at more than 15,500, many of those children. Um, but at the same time, the U.S. has said it supports um, Israel's broad aims in the war of destroying Hamas and uh, retrieving its hostages, which still stand at 137. Actually, we're also monitoring events in the Red Sea too after we had that uh, firing by a US Navy ship intervening because of fire from Houthi rebels in Yemen. What, what, how serious is an escalation of the events that we've seen in the Red Sea? Well, certainly yesterday was the most, um, most intense activity we've seen since the conflict began on October 7. Uh, the Houthis had said they would target Israeli-owned ships. 
And there have been a couple of instances so far, but yesterday there was a lot of activity with uh, three or four vessels targeted. No, none of them were badly damaged, um, but the uh, U.S. naval ship did have to fire on drones and perhaps missiles, and definitely it's an escalation of sorts. Okay. And so in terms of what it means uh, and a widening of the conflict in the Middle East, how, how much concern is there around that? I don't think um, I don't think we should overplay it. I don't think it means that there is, you know, there's going to be new players dragged into this conflict. But what it does mean is that uh, one of the world's most important uh, passageways for ship traffic is increasingly perilous, and um, that threatens world trade and the global economy. So it's it's a pretty big deal. Okay, Anthony, thank you very much for bringing us up to date with the latest developments there. That's our senior reporter, Anthony Cuisine, joining us from Tel Aviv this morning. Now, let's uh, go back to the story around COP28 and the climate talks as the world's biggest banks are heading to Dubai for what is Climate Day today. Industry insiders, though, are raising questions about the sustainable finance achievements that banks have made amid concerns that they are overstating their impact. Joining us for more on this is our markets reporter, Greg Ritchie. Uh, Good to have you back on radio. What is it that banks are doing that is now facing so much scrutiny? Thanks for having me. So the background to this is that all, pretty much every single major global bank has set a sustainable finance target. So that's where they commit to, say, raising $1 trillion of sustainable finance by 2030. And they often publicize that by saying, this year we raised $250 billion towards our target. The issue is that nobody has really defined sustainable finance in a coherent way that is the same across all banks. So some banks count deals that other banks wouldn't as sustainable finance. That makes these figures completely uncomparable and very difficult to navigate. Does this put in peril the whole idea then of of ESG? If we can't define it, it makes it much more difficult to track. I think you're right to highlight that. There's obviously been a lot of anti-ESG rhetoric, particularly in the US, and even scepticism in other parts of the world. I think... Banks are operating in a vacuum right now where there isn't a regulatory definition of what is a sustainable finance investment, and therefore they have to make up their own definitions. And I think if you're seeing some banks push the envelope a little bit in a way that is a little bit dubious, that's going to only add to the scepticism. Yeah. What are a few of the examples that you've turned up about what the the different definitions in sustainable finance mean? Hmm. What, what are some of the examples that you've, you've got? So place? I think um, one key example is M&A. It's, mm. um, obviously, M&A deals are massive. They can go into the tens of billions of dollars, whereas some banks counting M&A transactions as being sustainable finance and other banks that are not. And you can quickly imagine that if one bank does and one bank doesn't, that quickly skews their figures. So when it comes down to things like that, that can completely change the understanding. You also have very niche products like ESG derivatives. Lots of banks don't touch them, don't think they're sustainable finance, other banks count them towards their targets. Very quickly you can see the inconsistencies add up. So how then can investors and consumers who want to know where the money is going, how a particular bank is behaving, how can they actually assess that? It's very difficult for them and that is the problem. I'm speaking to a lot of researchers who are specialising on this and they struggle to navigate this through all the disclosures for all the small print. Um, so if you're a consumer and want to know if your bank is actively contributing towards the climate transition, you can speak to experts, you can read news articles about them, but it's very difficult to find a single number that will tell you this bank is better than this bank. Okay. Are regulators looking into this now then? They are. I think um, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, they wrote a letter to the 
banks heads of ESG earlier this year, and they raised a number of concerns. One of them was the fact that lots of bankers, their remuneration, their bonuses are set to the meeting of these targets. And that creates potential conflicts of interests. You can imagine that if you're a banker and you want to achieve your bonus, you might be pressured to slap the sustainable label on a product that maybe doesn't meet the grade in order to help you meet that bonus. So they're starting to think about it and think we might see more formal regulatory intervention in the coming years. Are the banks themselves worried about being accused of greenwashing? Definitely. So I speak to quite a few of the heads of ESG for this story and one thing that they keep on telling us is how cautious they're becoming. You know, maybe two years ago they would have put a label on something that they wouldn't do now. That's because of the increased scrutiny and many of them think that next year as regulatory scrutiny last laps up that they're going to face many different greenwashing risks that they need to navigate. Okay, it's a really interesting piece. Great research. Greg, thank you so much for joining us and uh, talking us through that story around uh, green financing and the biggest banks in the world. Uh, Greg Ritchie there on Markets Reporter. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now, Bill Gates says the world probably won't meet the Paris Agreement's goal of keeping the rise in global temperatures to one and a half degrees. However, the Microsoft co-founder praised the COP28 summit for making progress on tackling climate change despite geopolitical tensions. Bill Gates has been speaking to Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix in Dubai. She asked him how he measures success in this field. Uh, I'm optimistic in general. A lot of... uh the power of human innovation is showing here and in all, all the work I do. What does that mean? Does that mean that you measure success as in pledges? Do we measure success as trying to do better and putting more money where it should be? Well, in the end, it's all about the human condition. Uh, you know, more people are living longer. You know, we've cut childhood death in half. Climate is this negative thing. Uh, that's slowing down that progress. And so in mitigation, you know, we want to make sure the temperature doesn't get too high. And then in adaptation, we want to make sure that the ill effects, uh, that whatever we can't mitigate, uh, that it doesn't reverse this incredible rate of uh, human improvement. But what are you most optimistic about? Is it business or is it actually leaders coming together with pledges? Well, climate change, you know, Overall, it's a a challenge to the world. Hydrocarbons have been very cheap. Uh, Our economy is built around coal, gas, oil. 
And so we, we have to make this change. The progression of inventing new approaches, green approaches, uh, and then implementing them, and over time scaling them and getting them so cheap, what I call zero green premium, you first have to have risk capital, then you have to have uh, bigger amounts of capital, and eventually, as they say, trillions of dollars to get every country to replace its steel plants, its cement plants. And so, depending on the emissions area, some of these things like steel and cement were at the very early stage. Some like electric cars, at least at the high end, the green premium, uh, you could say, is zero. Not for, for low-cost cars where you park on the street, but, uh, you know, so all these things, you know, and, and the faster we go, the less temperature increase we'll see. But do you think we're going fast enough to actually hit the targets that were set out in the Paris Agreement? No, we won't hit, hit uh, no the aspirational targets. Well, you can do the math on 1.5 uh, and you know, even 2.0 uh, isn't that likely. Now, fortunately, if you stay below 3, a lot of the ill effects that people have heard about don't happen unless you really are irresponsible and let it get up to the, the higher range. Where do you see the role of fossil fuels going forward? Well, we have to outcompete fossil fuels. Now, to do that properly, they, you know, they shouldn't get subsidies. And in fact, a carbon tax uh, over time should be put on so that the new, you know, say the electric car or the plane that use hydrogen, uh, the fact it doesn't emit carbon, you're helping it uh, get adoption. Those companies have skills, you know, if you want to sequester carbon or, you know, nuclear waste or there's a lot of skills. Uh, if you want to make biofuels, uh, you know, some of those companies will take the capital and skills they have, uh, you know, so I wouldn't, you know, say, okay, I wish they weren't there. You know, people st still, you know, there's no country that can say, okay, we have zero emissions. Uh, you know, people want to drive to work. You know, in fact, the excess supply, uh, when Russia cut off its supply, you know, the world was sort of glad that that, that was available. And so, yes, oil and gas uh, needs to be outcompeted, and those companies need to join the, the effort. I, I know you look at a lot of technologies and a lot of innovation, but is there one thing that you've been most excited about in, in the past five years or that you're, you're most excited about for the future? I know we talk about nuclear fuel. We, I mean, we talk a lot, a lot about the, the really big, you know, exciting stuff. What are you excited about? Well, it, you know, I love all my children uh, and I have these hundred companies and, you know, I never knew that uh, we'd get a new way to make steel or cement or beef. Uh, it's fair to say that if we can get either nuclear fission or fusion to be safe and broadly accepted and uh, very economic, because it's not weather dependent, it would be very complementary to the large amount of solar and wind that we're putting into our electric system. And so. I'm, a, I'm biased, I'm a huge investor in, in both fission and fusion and hoping that uh, it comes in time. We, we can't count on it, um, you know, fission it has been too expensive and fusion doesn't 
exist yet. But Fusion, 15 years from now, like what's your, I know it's a guess at the moment. But well, of the, of the four companies I'm invested in, uh, one of them, Commonwealth Fusion, has a credible path, things will have to go well, uh, that in the late 2030s, they'd be making electricity and, and start to scale it up. So uh, that's an aspiration, but it's a great company. And we have three others that aren't quite uh, that early, but you know, are within five to 10 years of that. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.